This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello, welcome to VOA Africa. Thanks for joining us. I'm Douglas Simpuga, and here's what's coming up. We face many of the same challenges from climate change to economic inequality to strengthening democracy. That's U.S. First Lady Jill Biden telling Namibians that the U.S. and Namibia are facing similar challenges. Also, we talk live with VOA's Peter Kalote a day before Nigeria's national elections and on the anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we look at the war's impact on Africa. All this and more coming up on African News Tonight. Tomorrow, Nigerians vote in the presidential and parliamentary elections. This is the most contested election in the history of Nigeria's democracy, with 18 candidates running for president, including three frontrunners. The run-up to the election has been scattered violence, sometimes aimed at the Independent National Electoral Commission. In addition, a cash crisis caused by the effort to replace old Naira notes with new ones led to protests and caused many people problems paying bills. Viewers Peter Kalote is in the capital Abuja and joined us on the line to talk about preparations for the election. Hello, Peter. Welcome to the show. Hello, Douglas. Thank you very much for having me. Yes, uh, now, Peter, let's talk first about the security preparations. We understand the government has closed the borders in part as a security measure. Can you tell us about the security issues? Indeed, it is true that uh, the immigration service has announced closure of the border, uh, borders in anticipation of Saturday's presidential, senatorial, and House of Representatives elections. They did so, the officials tell us, because they want to ensure and maintain the territorial integrity of Nigeria, as well as maintain peace. Uh, we spoke with the director, uh, Deputy Inspector General of Police, who assured Nigeria... Uh, uh, Peter, are you there? Uh, I think uh, we have lost Peter. Uh, yes, we'll get back to Peter shortly. Um, meanwhile, today on the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, some humanitarian groups working to stave off acute hunger in Africa say they have faced big funding shortfalls partly because those resources have been diverted to Ukraine. Tom Pierre Costa, spokesperson for the Norwegian Refugee Council in Central and West Africa, tells VOA's Caravan Dam many countries on the continent were directly impacted by the war in Ukraine when Ukrainian shipments of grain and fertilizer were cut off by the Russians this past year. It's, it's important to, to remember that most of African uh, countries, especially in Western Central African Many of them, in addition, uh, endure a crisis. Uh, most of the food from, comes from uh, farming and harvesting. And this has been impacted uh, heavily when the prices of, uh, of cereals and, and fertilizers went up. Um, and we've seen a sharp rise of people being uh, food insecure. And we still expect the situation to be uh, worsening in 2023. Uh, just to give you an example, uh, by the, the period of the lean season, we, which should be between May and August, we, expe- we accept 48 million people to be food insecure in Mali, Burkina Faso, Central African Republic, and Nigeria. And this is partly due to the war in Ukraine. 
the food insecurity that we're hearing about, you know, Somalia and the countries you mentioned is it's supposed to be the worst in decades. Is is there a direct correlation, would you say, between the war in Ukraine and what's happening in Africa with food insecurity? I would say it's 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 it exacerbates. It's not the only reason. Obviously, um, the main reasons are uh, widespread conflicts, climate change. Uh, but of course, the war in Ukraine is worsening the situation. And it's also worsening our ability as humanitarians uh, to support uh, people who are, who are food insecure. Just to give you a concrete example, in the Central African Republic this year, due to a, a big shortage of, of fuel, we had to stop to suspend our operations in some part of Central African Republic, which affected 3.1 million people, basically. 3.1 million people were already uh, suffering uh, in a critical situation, uh, and we could not reach part of them due to a critical lack of, of fuel. What's, what's striking is that years after years, we say this is the worst year in the region in terms of food insecurity, but everywhere it's getting worse. So we don't we don't know when it's going to end, really, um, because every year we have additional burdens on the region. And you have to 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 add to that the fact that this region is heavily neglected. Uh, Afri- the West and Central African region, especially, is really neglected by the international community compared to other regions in crisis. When you Ukraine, say when you uh, say that, when you say compared to other regions in crisis, are you referring to Ukraine? Yeah, especially Ukraine. Uh, we have seen immediate support of the international community uh, for Ukraine, which is great. We have seen the full mobilization of uh, of EU countries, uh, the US and and others. Uh, they have really poured funding for the humanitarian crisis and for the rest. And we are not seeing that in our region. Just to give you some figures, uh, in 2022, Ukraine has received 80% of the money needed to cover the full humanitarian crisis. But the Democratic Republic of Congo has received less than 50%. Uh, That uh, was Tom Pierre Costa, spokesperson for the Norwegian Refugee Council in Central and West Africa, speaking to my colleague Caravan Dam from Dakar, Senegal. Now, we go back to Nigeria, where Nigerians go to vote in presidential and parliamentary elections. Uh, We'll also be on the line. Peter, are you there now? I'm here, Douglas. Yes. Sometimes can be a little challenging, but we'll march on. Yes. So uh, tell us about briefly the the situation right now. Well, the security situation, the police and sister organizations have teamed up to ensure that Nigeria of favor, intimidation, or harassment. At least that was what director of operations of the police, the deputy inspector general of police who is in charge of operations, told us yesterday when we spoke with him at his office at the police headquarters. He said there are two categories of people, those who want the elections to proceed, those law-abiding Nigerians, and those miscreants who are hell-bent in ensuring that they uh, proceed. And that he, uh, together with other top security officials, have deployed heavy security across the country and that there will be police officers in every polling station across the country just to make sure people feel safe. 
to vote in tomorrow's election. Of course, there are a few pockets of disturbances here and there, but the police tell me that they are in charge and they would ensure that people feel protected when they go to the ballots tomorrow. Uh, Peter, what's the mood there in the capital Abuja as people get ready to vote tomorrow? You know, today um, is the day for reflection, for people to think about all the information they've gotten from the political parties and their presidential uh, aspirants. Today is a reflection for them to think about who to vote for tomorrow. Now, we went to some supermarkets, and the supermarkets are full because um, there will be a curfew starting midnight tonight. Uh, until the election is complete tomorrow at 6 p.m. So people are rushing in to get their food, to get their supplies in order to be ready for for voting tomorrow. Uh, Movement will be restricted as part of the security measures to ensure people feel protected. But people are excited. I I am in the street now that I'm speaking with you. I just spoke to a lady who is very excited about tomorrow's election. People are for change. And the crowd... No matter who wins tomorrow, a new president will replace our going president, Mohamed Buhari. So there's excitement in the year. Let's see what happens tomorrow. Yes, Peter, you've spoken to a range of officials from party leaders, political analysts, to top national security officials. Briefly, what have they been telling you about preparations for tomorrow? Well, um, the election commission officials uh, told us that they are ready to go and that all measures have been put in place. Everything is ready to go. Uh, uh, The security officials are also calling on all Nigerians, including the prospective voters, to respect the electoral commission officials, the IMF officials who are tasked with carrying out the elections. Now, one concern some people are raising is that it is not fair for the media personnel who will be deployed tomorrow to do uh, reports, uh, the military and the, um, police people who will be deployed tomorrow, uh, they, you know, they are not going to vote. An election of com- commission officials are not going to be voting. Usually, they said they anticipated that the election commission would have them vote probably a day or two ahead of the election. But they have been in disenfranchised. So you have a few millions of people who will not be able to vote. So a lot of civil society uh, groups are calling on the INEC officials or the Independent National Electoral Commission officials to review that policy and enable those who will be deployed on election day to have the opportunity to vote because they are also citizens ahead of the election day. So these are some of the issues that are cropping up here in Abuja, particularly Douglas. Thanks, Peter. Peter in Abuja. Peter, we'll get back to you as the voting starts tomorrow. Ukrainians living in South Africa are marking one year since Russia's invasion with a dance production titled We Stand for Freedom. The performance, supported by the Desmond and Leah Tutu Legacy Foundation, draws parallels between racial oppression and apartheid and Moscow's war on Ukraine. Vicky Stark meets with Ukrainians who fled the war in this report from Cape Town, South Africa. Crafter Violeta Veliva, 61, and her mother Luba Jalalova, 86, fled Odessa, Ukraine, a day after Russia's bombs started falling last year on February 24th. They made their way to Cape Town, South Africa, where Veliva's daughter, Marta Kucharenko, has lived for six years. Her son is still in Ukraine, defending his homeland. 
It was very hard to leave my son in such danger, but he insisted on staying. He told me it's better for him if we are not there. He took us to the border with Slovenia. From there we went to the Czech Republic. When he got back, he got a gun, and now he's guarding the city. A mother says she yearns to return to Ukraine. I miss my village and I don't know what is happening with it because everyone has left there. We know a lot of Russians come there and they bomb the forest. To make ends meet in this foreign country, the two women are selling crafts like flower crowns, Ukrainian dolls and jams. Their goods are on sale at tonight's dance performance called We Stand for Freedom, being staged at the District 6 Homecoming Center. Ukrainian choreographer Katerania Aloshaina was inspired by an exhibition by the Desmond and Leah Tutu Foundation, which is supporting this event and has criticized the South African government's neutral stance. And when we walked through that exhibition, we actually saw that South Africa went through the same path which Ukrainians are going now. And it was so touchful, you know, that we have so many in common, especially as a value of freedom, as a core value uh, for the society. Chief Operating Officer Pumin Klapo says anti-apartheid activist Desmond Tutu stood for peace. She urged people to speak out. Um, when we asked other people in the past to support us in the struggle against apartheid, it was the people in those countries that pressured their governments to, to change their stance against South Africa. And that's possibly where the, the, um, the voice of the people can be heard in terms of their feelings about what is happening. The United Nations Human Rights Office estimates at least 8,000 non-combatants have been killed in the war in the past year and nearly 13,300 injured. It says the true figures could be much higher. Vicky Stark for VOA News, Cape Town, South Africa. You're listening to African News Tonight. I'm Douglas Impoga in Washington. For more information on these and other stories from the continent, please see voaafrica.com. There you'll find all your favorite viewer radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. For world news, check out voanews.com. U.S. First Lady Jill Biden has arrived in Kenya where she hopes to draw attention to women's empowerment, children's issues and the hunger crisis that's gain, that is again ravaging the Horn of Africa. Yesterday, she praised Namibia's vibrant democracy at a pomp-filled, dignitary-heavy state luncheon with Namibia's First Lady Monica Gingos and her husband, President Heg Gingo. Biden told Namibians, and, told Namibians that the United States and Namibia face shared challenges. We face many of the same challenges, from climate change to economic inequality to strengthening democracy which is why the U.S. African Leader Summit was held in Washington, D.C. in December, because it was so important to him. And it's why I'm proud to be standing here, standing with a strong democracy. Biden also said that African voices are critical to solving pressing world problems. We're committed to making sure that African countries not only have a voice in organizations 
like the UN Security Council and the G20, but that those voices are valued as equal partners, working side by side to advance our shared priorities and empowering women and youth, strengthening global health, and building economic prosperity. Gingos told Biden that her visit was a powerful sign of friendship for a country that needs work. Biden said she decided to visit Namibia, her first time there, after getting to know Gengos when she accompanied her husband to Washington for a U.S. summit leaders from Africa. South African power supplier ESCOM appointed an interim CEO today, replacing the former director who accused the ruling party of graft. The French news agency AFP says ESCOM's chief financial officer, Kalib Kasim would lead the state utility with immediate effect. He replaces Andre Druyat, who told the media that a high-level politician and crimes groups are involved in the theft of about 55 million U.S. dollars per month from the company. He also says he survived a poisoning attempt in December. Police are investigating. The ruling African National Congress denied the claims and accused the director of incompetence. Authorities are considering legal action against him. ESCOM continues to be plagued by daily outages, costing millions of dollars in lost output. Critics blame years of mismanagement, disrepair, and corruption. Researchers in Kenya say they have detected an invasive mosquito that can transmit malaria in different climates, threatening progress to fight the parasitic disease. Kenya's Medical Research Institute this week urged the public to use mosquito nets and clean up areas where mosquitoes can breed. Mohamed Yusuf reports from Nairobi, Kenya. Kenya has detected the presence of a new malaria carrier, which was first discovered in the region in Djibouti 2012. The new carrier, the Nophilis staphensi mosquito, transmits Plasmodium vivax, the parasite that causes the deadliest type of malaria. Ben Hads Ogutu is a chief researcher at Kenya Medical Research Institute. He says it was only a matter of time before the mosquito was discovered in the country after it appeared in Ethiopia and South Sudan. We've not been able to pick the Plasmodium vivax, which is found in Asia and Kenya. It is there in Ethiopia, and this vector can also transmit it. So that will also look out whether there's any possibility that we might have vivax, Plasmodium vivax in coming up with this new new vector showing up in our place. Vivax is a slightly more difficult to treat in that even if you can get treated and it can, re- it can also relapse because it keeps staying in the body in the liver. Malaria affects over 229 million people each year and kills over 400,000 people, according to the World Health Organization. More than a quarter of a million children die in Africa each year as a result of the mosquito-borne disease, including over 10,000 in Kenya. Ogutu expresses concern for urban residents, saying that the new carrier may feed on poor environmental management systems. So the fact that this can survive in the urban areas where the water is not clean and, and can transmit that's where people are having, but... For the time being is to monitor to see what extent are we going to have it is spreading and see what impact it will have. Ridento Debelin is a public officer in the Marsabit County town of Lysamis where the vector was discovered. 
He says experts are going to communities to teach people how to protect themselves from the disease. To sensitize only and, and to teach them how to prevent themselves from biting of the vector. And we are, we are trying to spray the houses. We, we are trying to, to tell them about it through the CHVs. All the villages have CHVs, community health volunteers. If they get affected, they go to the hospital. According to the researchers, the population should continue to use malaria control tools such as sleeping under mosquito nets and practicing good environmental management and sanitation. In 2021, the WHO approved a malaria vaccine for children aged five months to two years that has been shown to reduce child deaths. Mohamed Yusuf for VA News, Nairobi. Gunmen have killed at least 12 civilians in an attack in Mali. Reuters says the victims were killed last night in a village near the town of Bankas in the Mopti region, an area where Islamic extremists are active. The town's mayor says an identified gunman burst into the village, ransacked it, shot people, and chased those who fled into the forest. Mali has been battling Islamic militants for 10 years in an insurgency that has spread to coastal states south of the Sahara, killing thousands and displacing millions. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Douglas Impuga in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbil Yeboro, and our engineer tonight, thanks for choosing the Voice of America. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. It's been four years since the April 2019 ousting of then-Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir, two since a short-lived power-sharing agreement between two unlikely political entities and a subsequent military takeover. And things are finally beginning to look up in Sudan. One of the first signs of positive movement was the beginning last April of the trial of Ali Muhammad Ali Abdal Rahman, better known as Ali Kushab. Ali Kushab is alleged to have committed crimes against humanity and war crimes as a senior leader of the Janjaweed, a Sudanese government-aligned militia that used extreme brutality to help put down an uprising in Sudan's Darfur province. This is a crucial moment for Sudan's future, said Mark Simonoff, a legal advisor for the U.S. delegation to the United Nations. This is a landmark case. The first trial against any senior leader for atrocities committed by the Omar al-Bashir regime and government-supported forces in Darfur, and more importantly, the first real opportunity for justice that victims of Darfur have had. Another sign of positive movement is the December 5th signing of the Framework Political Agreement. This accord between military rulers and civilian power is an essential first step towards re-establishing Sudan's democratic transition, which began with the 2019 overthrow of the al-Bashir regime, but came to a halt with the military takeover of the government in October 2021. 
This agreement and the recent launch of Phase 2 dialogues on outstanding issues are promising steps towards establishment of a final agreement to form a civilian government. The fact that these negotiations have happened at all is a testament to the Sudanese women, men, and youth who have persistently and courageously taken to the streets to demand their rights and to call for civilian rule, despite facing violence at the hands of Sudanese security forces. Still, some of the hardest challenges lie ahead as the parties begin to negotiate some of the issues in these Phase 2 dialogues. This includes the Juba Peace Agreement, which stipulates that Sudan will be constructed as a federation, as well as the questions of transitional justice and security sector reform. Over the next few months, said Mr. Simonoff, we will continue to stand with the Sudanese people as they work to find common ground on how transitional justice, including accountability for the violence in many decades of conflict, can advance truth, justice, reconciliation, and healing. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. 